Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center, and I am joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yurashami. And I wanna welcome all of you, uh, our listeners, and those who are viewing the video cast to season two of our podcast slash, slash video cast. You know, on January 13th, the uh, US Supreme Court issued two decisions regarding two of the federal vaccine mandates. Um, today, we will discuss those decisions, uh, unraveling them somewhat, explaining what they did and did not do, and discussing where we go from here with regard to these vaccines. Now, I wanna begin with a, a point I often try to make, and that point is this. You know, our constitution was designed principally to do two things, to prevent tyranny and to protect liberty. And it accomplishes these objectives in, in multiple ways, first and foremost, through the, the Bill of Rights, but it's also accomplished by limiting the power of the federal government and diffusing that power through co-equal branches of government, the so-called separation of powers. Now understand this, liberals love big government. And I include in there many liberals who, who carry the tagline as Republican, right? But liberals love big government, including liberals on the Supreme Court. They love a bureaucratic administrative state. Why? Because it's tyrannical by nature. Liberals are tyrants by nature. They are. And quite frankly, that's a fact. And it's borne out uh, based on the evidence. Now, you can protect liberty by reducing or limiting the power of government and by protecting certain liberty interests, like freedom of speech, by limiting, once again, the government's power to infringe on that liberty interest. Now, remember, and this is an important point, the Bill of Rights is not the granting of rights by the government. These rights are inalienable. They are endowed by our creator. The Bill of Rights is a break on the government's power to infringe those rights. So with that as a background, we will divide, we'll dive into these two recent decisions, uh, decisions which address the government power side of the equation, and so not so much the individual liberty side of that equation. And hopefully that'll make more sense as we, uh, as we get into these decisions. Uh, but before I, I dive into those, I wanna again welcome my colleague, uh, David Urashami, to provide any you know, initial commentary uh, or insights before we, I get into some, the uh, details of these decisions. David, welcome. Welcome, and thank you. I'm actually looking forward to hearing your take on the two Supreme Court cases. We only talked briefly about it, so this will be interesting to me, which is why I down-formalized myself. I took my tie off. You didn't notice yet. Oh, yeah. So I'm here, I'm here, to, I'm here to be schooled like the rest of the audience. Yeah, well, I, uh, I'm not so sure I'll be, I'll be schooling you. But, you know, I've, I've received a lot of, in fact, I just recently did two radio interviews on these cases because many people are confused about really what is the status of these vaccine mandates um, and, you know, and where do we go from here? So let's just, let's just dive, uh, dive into that. And again, we're dealing here with the federal vaccine mandates, those by the, uh, the Biden administration uh, issued through various uh, agencies that are you know, part of the, uh, the administration, one being the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services and the other one being the, uh, the Secretary of Labor. Now, bear in mind, there is also a federal contractor mandate uh, from the Biden administration issued by way of an executive order. I'll, I'll touch upon that a little bit. And you also have the mandates being imposed by the federal government against military members. And I'll touch upon that a little bit towards the end. This doesn't include various state 
mandates, right? State law mandates or county vaccine mandates, which would still be subject to certain prescriptions of the constitution, not the power equation of this uh, two-sided uh, coin that I was just talking about, the, the government power side and the individual liberty side, but the state mandates certainly would infringe upon on the liberty side. And again, I'll get into that a little bit more, but states generally have far more power, general police powers to do things in the pub, public health arena, in public interest arena, than does the federal government, which is supposed to be a government of limited and enumerated powers. And then a third category of these vaccine mandates are those from private entities and private actors. And, and, uh, and I have to re remind people all the time of this, you know, constitutional law 101. The constitution does not, the federal constitution does not apply to private acts, to persons, to private companies. So you don't have a constitutional right to object to a vaccine mandate that might be issued by the owners of a private company. You just don't. You might have employment rights or even federal statutory rights like Title VII, but those fall into the employment arena. They don't implicate constitutional rights. Constitutional rights are only triggered when you have state action. Now, bear in mind, um, you can have state action if you have a private actor who is conspiring with or acting jointly with a state actor that would be sufficient to create state action and under the, if you have the appropriate facts and, uh, and circumstances. Or like, for example, you know, you, the Ford Motor Company is imposing, as an example, because I'm working with several employees of Ford, a vaccine mandate, but their mandate is because of the federal contractor mandate. So it's still a federal mandate that's being imposed through the, uh, the private employer. So you'd still have constitutional rights against the federal vaccine mandate. But then if Ford decided, look, I wanna have my own independent vaccine mandate, you wouldn't have a constitutional claim um, against them as being a private actor. So the two mandates that were uh, presented before the Supreme Court, and again, by way of procedural background, these were our preliminary decisions. They're questions of whether or not these mandates should be stayed and joined or essentially stopped while these cases are pending and moving through the process to get to the merits. So these, these were preliminary rulings that uh, while uh, in one case with the, uh, we'll call it the OSHA mandate, where the court stated, meaning that it can't be enforced, uh, that mandate can't be enforced while the case proceeds uh, through litigation. The other mandate we're gonna talk about is the one that was imposed on healthcare providers who receive Medicare and Medicaid funds. And that one, the court did not stay the enforcement. So that one can be enforced while the case is proceeding. So let's talk about the first one. All right, the first one, it was decided, the, the court decided to stay, meaning stop and uh, to enjoin the OSHA mandate. This was the mandate that applied to, um, to businesses that have 100 or more um, employees. And it was- Bob, can I, can yes. I pause you for just a sec? Let me just explain to the audience, because I think that's well said, stop it. Some of the audience might not understand. So suppose you're this employee of, the, of a federal contractor or- um, an employee under the OSHA mandate, which is any employer that has 100 or more. And um, your employer is giving you only two weeks to get your first vaccine shot and then 30 days. Otherwise, you're going to get fired or put on unpaid administrative leave. So you go to a lawyer like us, and if we file a lawsuit, litigation can take years. 
So what you do is you file immediately either what's called a temporary restraining order or more effectively, I think, a request for preliminary injunction, which says, look, we think we have a good case based upon the facts. And since we're going to be harmed permanently by this decision, we're going to be fired, put out of work, not have a, 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 a livelihood. If you don't rule, at least in the interim basis, Mr. Judge, the court or Mrs. Judge, whoever it is. So we're asking for a preliminary injunction to stop enforcement of this, not a final ju judgment, not a final decision until you decide ultimately on the, all the facts and matters that have to be discussed and, and analyzed. So that's what Rob means by stopped now. That's a preliminary injunction. A permanent injunction happens at the end of the case. If the court agrees with you, it will permanently enjoin or stop the government from enforcing the mandate. Okay. All right. So dealing with the, the OSHA mandate, this one was decided 6-3. Um, the three dissenters were the, uh, no big surprise, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, the three uh, liberal tyrants that are on the bench. Um, and uh, so this was a 6-3 decision. And this was a, a mandate that came uh, by the Secretary of the Labor via the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which is enforced by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. Right? And, that's, uh, and OSHA has authority by an act of Congress. Right? It's important to, to identify what the act is. Again, it's the Occupational Safety and Health Act, because it's through that act that they get their authority by enabling legislation. That's enabling legislation that gives them the authority to act that came from Congress. And so they focused, the court focused on this enabling, on this legislation, on the, uh, on the Occupational Safety Health Act, and see whether OSHA has the authority to issue such a broad mandate. And the court concluded that it did not. So the Secretary of Labor did not, was not authorized by Congress, as it were. And, and so this even leaves aside the question of whether Congress could even have the power to authorize the Secretary of Labor to have these types of mandates, right? So that question wasn't decided. The, a, a much broader power question wasn't decided. But the more limited power question, whether or not the Secretary of Labor, through an act of Congress, has the authority to issue this very broad mandate. They said it would cover approximately 84 million people. Very broad, right? It would apply to a company that hired, I think they, one of the examples they used was, you know, lifeguards, as well as meat packers, right? I mean, it, it just applies across the board to companies that had landscapers, you know, as opposed to somebody that might be in a, a far more close quarters for their work. So it was a very, very broad mandate. And the court said, no, it does not have that authority because OSHA gives the authority to deal with workplace safety. And while certainly COVID um, affects, it affects people at home, it affects them in the workplace, it's, it's not per se a workplace problem. It's a more, it's a more broad public health issue and, and uh, the Secretary of Labor does not have the authority to issue these broad edicts that go far and above beyond just workplace safety. And one of the, um, one of the points that they made, which I thought was, uh, was, a, was an interesting point, was the fact that, look, you, you, OSHA might put in place um, different standards for, you know, for, for work safety. Right, you have to have certain goggles. You have to wear certain protective clothing. You have to, you know, 
all these different workplace. And, and those things can be, you know, you come to work, you, you put on, you put in, put in place those safety measures, then you go home. You can't leave a vaccine at work, right? Once they jab you in the arm and it's in your body, it goes well beyond just the, the workplace. And so at the end of the day, the court, I mean, this is one of the, uh, one of the points it says, it says, although COVID-19 is a risk that occurs in many workplaces, it is not an occupational hazard. And that was really the main point. He said, here's another, I think, uh, one of the key quotes. A vaccine mandate is strikingly unlike the workplace regulations that OSHA has typically imposed. A vaccination, after all, cannot be undone at the end of the workday. OSHA's indiscriminate approach fails to account for this crucial distinction between occupational risk and risk more generally. And accordingly, the mandate takes on the character of a general public health measure rather than an occupational safety or health standard. And so at the end of the day, the court said, look, there is no authority to, uh, to issue this uh, very broad mandate under the Occupational Safety and, uh, and Health Act. And so that's, that's how it reached its conclusion, 6-3. Now, bear in mind, what was the other flip side of the coin that I mentioned? So first you have the question of power. Here the court resolved this issue on the really the second layer of power, whether or not Congress because they didn't address the question at the outset whether Congress would have the authority itself to um, to to incorporate something like this into the OSHA, into the act into the, the congressional enactment. So it didn't address that question, but addressed specifically the the construction of that statute that the Secretary of Labor was relying on and said it didn't grant this power. The court did not reach any conclusion regarding the you know the recipient of the vaccine meaning the individual who happens to work for this company, does he have a liberty interest, right, above and beyond the, the government's power uh, pursuant to the statute, but does the individual who is being forced, subject to penalty, loss of job, wages, and so forth, to get the vaccine? Does he have a, a right to free exercise of religion, for example, uh, where you may have an objection to these vaccines, all of them have been morally compromised because they make use of, a, of stem cells from aborted, uh, aborted babies, whether in their production or in their uh, development at some stage. Uh, they didn't address whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, another federal statute, would prohibit it, this, uh, the enactment of the mandate. It didn't address the question of personal autonomy, of bodily integrity, which are due process liberty interests that are protected under the U.S. Constitution. So it didn't even touch those uh, issues in this case. It just held that that statute did not grant the authority. And those other issues may, you know, may work their way up uh, through the court as well in the context of, these, of this case. I know they're working their way up in, in other cases. So that's, the, that's, in a nutshell, what the, uh, the OSHA mandate 6-3. Now, moving to the second one. The second one was the, a mandate that was imposed by the Secretary of Health and Human Services and applied to those healthcare you know, facilities, uh, workers, organizations that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding. Now, this decision was 5-4 in favor of not stopping the mandate. So this mandate, is it was actually stayed in the appellate courts below, and that was appealed in the 5-4 in, in the decision. They reversed that stay. So unlike the OSHA mandate, which is now currently cannot be enforced, this mandate for healthcare uh, providers can be enforced in light of this 5-4 decision. And who are the two... Uh, uh, justices that went along with the typical liberal cabal. 
Well, no big surprise, Roberts and Kavanaugh. Uh, and so it was a uh, it was a five to four decision with Roberts and Kavanaugh. And again, it was all about statutory interpretation. They looked at the actual um, legislation that was that was passed and they found a most a more close, a more a, a closer fit between the language, the enabling language of the statutes that are that are that cover Medicare and, and Medicaid and the obligations upon recipients of Medicare and Medicaid and what those requirements were. And they found that a vaccine fit within those types of requirements because they cited to one section of the statute says that these programs, Medicare and Medicaid, that hospitals pursuant to the authority, pursuant to receiving those funds, the hospitals, uh, hospitals must implement and govern surveillance, prevention, and control of infectious infectious diseases. So you're talking about in a healthcare environment, um, a statute that that more closely is tied to you know healthcare and and recipients of Medicare and Medicaid are are likely the ones that are most vulnerable as well to uh, to COVID-19. Right, the medic the Medicaid is for those who um, the low income people who generally aren't as healthy. They don't have access to healthcare as much, um, and the you know the Medicare for the elderly. So the court found, and again, it was 5-4. This isn't a slam dunk. It was a 5-4 ruling that said that the uh, that this mandate pursuant to those, to the statute that they were relying on for the authority uh, was a close enough fit that the court did not, the court reversed the stay and allowing the mandate to go in effect while the case continues to proceed. So, and again, at the end of the day, on the merits, the courts might ultimately reach an opposite decision in either both cases or or one and and or the other, right? So at the end of the day, after however long litigation goes on, both mandates might be thrown out, or one might still be in effect, or both might be still in effect. And again, this in this case, the Supreme Court did not address the individual liberty side of the of the equation of of freedom. It did not address the question of free exercise of religion objections. Uh, whether RIFRA, uh, you'd have objection pursuant to RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or whether there's, you know, it violates personal autonomy and bodily integrity. So that's, so these decisions are, are very narrow in terms of their, of what they, uh, of what they uh, concluded. And again, 6-3 and 5-4, very, very close. I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the day that both of them uh, struck down. And again, we're waiting for the Supreme Court to, and it's likely the Supreme Court will take up the question of of whether these uh, mandates violate fundamental liberty interests of you know of the uh, employees who are the recipients of uh, of those, um, so that's that is the and these weren't very long decisions and and again they address the question from a uh, from a power uh, perspective. The the uh, third mandate, which the Supreme Court didn't decide, but it is in the courts, the federal contractor mandate. And there, there's a, a government statute, I think it's called the Procurement Act, which is what uh, Biden was relying on to issue as an executive order to mandate vaccines for any company that contracts with the federal government, which is obviously many, many companies. Well, there was a federal district court in Georgia this last month issued a nationwide injunction in joining the federal contractor mandate along the same types of reasoning that the Procurement Act does not does not grant such broad authority to the president to impose this as an obligation uh, to entering into contracts with the federal government. 
that uh, the government has appealed that nationwide injunction to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Uh, the case is on appeal. The government asked that the injunction issued below be stayed while the case was on appeal, and the 11th Circuit said no. So right now, there is a nationwide injunction issued from the district court in Georgia in joining the federal contractor mandate. There's also a mandate for all military members. We are representing three Navy SEALs who are still waiting for final decisions on their requests for religious exemptions under the Free Exercise Clause and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to the mandates. It looks like right now um, all the military services, with very, very few exceptions, are issuing blanket denials, which you can't do under RIFRA. Uh, you can't just have a blanket denial. It has to be based on you know, facts and circumstances related to that individual. Um, and uh, still waiting for all these to kind of work through. There's been some that have already been filed. Uh, most of the courts, typically, unless there is a final ruling, you, you might have an initial denial. But like, for example, with the Navy SEALs, they, they, issue a, they make a request. There might be an initial denial. And then the final decision maker, though, is the Chief of Naval Operations, the CNO. And you have to appeal to the CNO which we're doing and we're waiting for the CNO, the Chief of Naval Operations to give a final decision on that. If you file beforehand, you'll, you, uh, you run the, the great risk of the court saying, now nah, your case isn't right because we don't know if you've been harmed yet because there's no final decision on your request for an exemption. Uh, there's one court that, that didn't go that route and that was in Texas, not surprised, a district court in Texas issued an injunction in joining the military mandate for those individuals who actually sued. Uh, it's not a nationwide injunction like in Georgia. It's just an, and, and that court reached the conclusion that it was a violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, and the, the religious rights of, the, um, of those service members. Um, and I, I'm pretty certain that case is on appeal. It'll be up to the Fifth Circuit. Fifth Circuit tends to be conservative. They're one of the ones that struck down one of these uh, other mandates that made its way up to the Supreme Court as well. So that's where those, uh, the federal mandates are, are lying at the moment in terms of, uh, in, 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 aside from checking just, you know, before we came online, whether or not there's been any other decisions that are issued, but those are the main ones. And I want to address the Supreme Court ones because I find that among lay people, and it's quite understandable, there's a lot of confusion as to what actually took place, what's mandated, what's not mandated, what is the basis for it, um, and, and so on. So hopefully that provided some, uh, some clarity uh, as to the status of these uh, of the vaccine mandates. And again, that's only on the federal side, not on the uh, state side. David. Rob, thank you. That was a very good exposition. And I, I think it'll go a long way to explain to our listeners um, what just took place. I, I, the only point I would like to draw out is, and, and this might be more appropriate for the lawyers or the legal-minded of our audience, the OSHA decision was a fairly easy decision, and that's why it's 6-3. Of course, the three hardcore progressives are going to vote ideologically, not based upon the facts of the law. Um, you got all the conservatives, including the weak-kneed conservatives, and I don't really consider Roberts a conservative, rather a politician, trying to, as it were, insulate the court from claims of political uh, bias, but of course, he's doing a poor job of that. But the point I want to make here is that it was a per curiam decision, meaning no one put their name on it. And that's kind of an effort to make it sound like they're speaking in one voice. But here's what they said about the 
statute that Congress passed, as Rob explained, authorizing OSHA to um, issue regulations and rules regarding workplace safety. The court said, quoting an earlier decision of the same year, we expect Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance. And the OSHA um, statute that authorizes OSHA and gives it its power that passed by Congress didn't speak clearly at all about um, diseases that might affect the workplace environment, but clearly aren't sourced or generated uniquely from a workplace environment. Why was there a 5-4 decision in the um, healthcare worker or anyone who received any institution that received monies under Medicare or Medicaid? Why was that a much closer vote that lost? The dissenters, the conservative dissenters and Roberts, and as Rob pointed out, Chief Justice Roberts dragged Kavanaugh with him to the leftist side. There, the dissenters made the point very strongly that the Medicare-Medicaid enabling statutes that authorize various acts and, and, and monies and so forth also didn't speak clearly to authorize this kind of federal mandate across the board. And so if the rule means anything, that Congress must speak clearly when authorizing such vast mandates, then it has to mean the same thing in the Medicare Medicaid context. But because it was just a little less unclear, according to Roberts and Kavanaugh, that was enough for them to go to the other side. But interestingly, in the Medicare Medicaid mandate case, they didn't speak to this exact point. They didn't, the, the majority opinion essentially ignored what they had said previously or just kind of trampled over it. So um, I, I'm hoping that Kavanaugh will see the light of the, uh, you know, at some point during the day. I don't believe Roberts will, um, but I'm not holding my breath on that one. You know, and, th and this points to, to me, one of the biggest problems that has how our uh, government has morphed is uh, we really don't, you, you have Congress, right? It's supposed to be the legislative branch that's passing the laws. Well, now you have this, it's really, it's an administrative state, right? Because they pass, they pass enabling legislation, which then explodes into administrative regulations. And if you have any doubt about that, go into Washington, D.C. and look at the size of the building of the EPA, right? The EPA is just a, a creature that was created by Congress by a, by a particular statute. And I guarantee you, there's probably nobody in Congress who votes for these, these laws has any idea what's actually coming out in terms of the regulations that are being generated by these administrative agencies. They've actually run amok. You want to talk about a deep state? It's these, and it's the, you know, we vote for, and, and again, we have a rep Republican form of government, right? So we don't vote on every piece of legislation. We vote for representatives who are going to represent us in our government. We have a House of Representatives and we have a Senate. But they pass laws that create this enabling legislation that then results in 
huge, huge regulations, right? I forget even like at Obamacare. I mean, the, the law that was passed itself was absurd in terms of its size, but the number of regulations, which have the force and effect of law that were developed from that, that no legislature voted on at all, they were just created by bureaucrats, is, you know, is, a, is an exponent larger than and, and what the actual be, legislation was. And, and let's be clear for our listeners what that means. So a piece of legislation will simply say, with a lot of words like Obamacare, as Rob said, that no one read the thousands of pages. But what it typically would say after laying out all of its policy and ideological bias and so forth, would say, and we authorize the establishment of this agency, if it's an actual establishment, or we authorize um, this agency to issue regulations um, to affect the purposes of this statute. And so that's why the EPA is huge, the um, FDA is huge, the SEC Securities and Exchange that, that covers you know, the stock market is huge. And when they issue these regulations and rules and guidances, there's all kinds of administrative things and they're different levels. So as an attorney, you have to know the difference between a regulation, a rule and a guidance, and then even a, an opinion by some lawyer in one of those agencies. And then when they want to change them, they issue all these announcements that people can comment and they gather comments and then they issue reviews of those comments. And then they start piecemealing the changes in the regulations. So they're not immediately in one place. So you have to go chase all of these regulations and rules from many different sources and piece together what it means. And it is literally a Byzantine maze. And it's why, you know, big, heavy heft, $2,000 an hour lawyers who used to work with these agencies, right? When they want to retire like Fauci. Now he's gone into his, what is late seventies, eighties, what have you. But typically what they do is they work till they get their full pension they then retire and go to work for some either big company that's affected or typically big, you know, big law firm world. And they get paid huge bucks to essentially tell us what all these regs say. And more importantly, to go back to his friends at the agency and lobby for the interest of their particular clients. It's, it's a, the, the whole administrative state affects not just a huge bureaucracy, but where these bureaucrats go when they retire, because they don't go home and you know go to Ford and get suntanned. They go into the law business or the business business and continue this, this internecine symbiotic relationship they have with their pals back in the government. And, and think about, I mean, the incredible costs this is to companies to have to try to manipulate and navigate all these rules and regulations and all these requirements that are being imposed upon you. I mean, it's some, it, it would crush it, I mean, it's the, the cost of that. And, and who bears that cost? It's right. It's not the company. It's the consumer who wants to buy the product at the end of the day. You've got all these crazy regulations that are being, being imposed upon them. And then the other side of it is if somebody, you know, somebody wants to go after, if you have a political enemy that, you know, runs a company or something, I guarantee you, you could probably go through that company with a fine tooth comb and find some violation somewhere of some regulation that somebody dusted off. I mean, it's just, I don't, 
I don't know how you know these large businesses actually you know can can operate in this incredibly ridiculous administrative state, right? And well, Dave, you I, mentioned like in California. I mean, and you have it even at the next level, right? You have the state level crazies, California, right? You were just mentioning they have a new uh, masking requirement for you know for businesses in uh, in California to provide N95 masks, which I don't even let know. Let me if you can let me give the them. real. Let me yeah. drill down on this a bit because this the point you're making is valid. So I'm a general counsel to a privately held company. I won't mention the industry or the, or the company. It's run by a husband and wife. They work 24-7 together. Um, and I'm outside general counsel. And they have their businesses located throughout Southern California. Um, and in LA County and in Orange County and elsewhere it's licensed, but those are their operations. And so just looking at COVID, forget all the other massive regulation by the Fed and the state of California, just look at COVID protocols, which are changing every day. So what do we have to deal with? We have to deal with federal mandates to see if, how they affect us and their recommendations for best practices or good practices, because even just their recommendations, if we don't follow them and someone gets sick, a worker or a customer, they're going to sue the company. And we have to be able to say that we followed the government guidelines of good practices or the higher level best practices. Beyond that, so you have the Fed OSHA and the Fed CDC. Beyond that, you have California Department of Health and California OSHA occupation safety hazard agency. So you have a Cal OSHA issuing regulations and guidances and so forth. Then we operate in LA County and Orange County. Each of those counties have health departments and governments that issue their own regulations, sometimes stricter, sometimes as strict, never more lenient because you have to end up following the strictest regulate. Then you have LA City where we have operations, Santa Monica City that has its own separate regulations, Pasadena that has its own separate regulations, and West Hollywood that has its own separate regulations. And then in Orange County, cities can have their own separate regulations. But that's the absolutely absurd puzzle that not only do you have to figure out what it says today going forward, for a year or two, you have to figure out what it says every other day because they literally change these things day to day. And the example of the mask. So LA County just came out with its rule, LA County, that says no longer are just regular um, loose fitting cloth or, or surgical masks acceptable. You now have to have, and here's their language, um, well-fitted surgical mask, medical grade mask, or something like N95 or better. So what that means is, and it's all being reported that you have to have N95. Well, that's false because N95s are considered OSHA puts out these guidelines. They're actually, it's NACE. It's a, some abbreviation for some federal agency that talks about level one protection, level two protection, level three. Well, this rule, which everyone was reporting requires N95, actually doesn't. It talks about well-fitted. Well, there's no definition in any reg 
So what we do is we go to similar regulations and see, well, it's level two. So what's the difference between level one and level two? We are giving out level ones. You know, those blue and white kind of medical masks they give you? Well, the regular ones without any kind of nose thing is a level one. And level two has a somehow an extra layer, but the main point is, is it has a little aluminum piece on the nose bridge that you can clamp down. And that apparently fits the definition of a well-fitted surgical mask. So, um, you know, to, and to figure that out, what did we do? I had to spend about six hours going through the material. Then I had to turn to my outside labor counsel, who I've retained at a obnoxious cost, to go through the same regulation and say, David, I agree with you. Because I can't rely on my own opinion because there are no experts in this field because you can't be an expert in a field that changes every day. You just can't be. And, and isn't it the uh, company that has to bear the cost of those and provide them to their customers when they come to the door? Yeah, well, we have to provide them with all the employees and have to make them available to customers. And by the way, you ask, how do we afford? Well, in California, we afford it, even though our profit margins shrink every day because of regulations. We afford it because you pass it on to the customer. The yeah. customer pays for these regulations in addition to the entrepreneur. And by the way, in addition to workers, because you can't give bonuses in California, you can't give raises without affecting some other cost because of the Byzantine regulations that we have to follow. So if your profit margins are shrinking because of regulations, it means you have to pay your workers less. Yep. So you can keep raising minimum wage, but here's a, a, a fundamental example of how free enterprise in this country is being destroyed by regulation. My client has workers who began at an entry level minimum wage. And without a high school diploma, many of them came to the United States from south of the border. No high school education, didn't speak English, but the company worked with them. And there are many of these workers who have been with the company for 10 or 15 years, worked their way up from the most entry-level manual type of labor to the point of being area supervisors, general managers, making six figures, six figures. But we would have more of them and higher salaries for all of them if there were less regulations. So every time you want to vote for a higher minimum wage or more regulations and more government control, just know you're costing yourself more at the, at the retail cashier when you pay for your goods and you're reducing your own income. Yep. It's, it's inevitable. Government just Government can only increase cost of things. It doesn't improve anything. It just doesn't do that. And we, and we see that with these, uh, with these regulations. And oh, by the way, right, the regulations that are supposedly based on science, which will be a transition into this next point that I want to, this Reuters article. But right now, why, why all this uh, transitioning from the masks? Well, because we've learned, at least from the reports and so forth, what we knew from the very beginning and what was Fauci's point from the very beginning is that these cloth masks, these surgical masks, they don't work. They don't stop the transmission of, of disease. They just don't, it's, a, it's, a, it's airborne, it's vaporized. 
If you can, you get air flowing through that mask, guess what? The virus can go through that mask. You know, in the Marine Corps, you, you always had to have a clean shaven face. You weren't allowed to have a beard or facial hair. And oftentimes first responders aren't either. Why? Because your gas mask, or if you have an air, it has to have a tight seal on your face. You don't get that if you have a beard. But, you know, it's, it's just some of these regulations they have, it's just, it's just tyranny. They like to control your lives. You know, I saw a guy in CVS yesterday. I was at CVS here locally in Michigan. And he, the guy literally had a gas mask on walking into CVS. And I'm like, oh, boy, this is where we're headed. This guy with this, uh, with this gas mask. And I was like, seriously? But just to give you a story, when, oh, I, when I, just to give you a story, when I went with my wife many years ago and we went to Israel, and it was in the midst of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. And of course, um, Saddam Hussein was threatening to gas Israel. And so everyone was given gas masks. So when we arrived and the guy gave me a gas mask, he told me honestly, he said, keep it in the box because with your beard, it's absolutely yeah. not effective. So I can wear an N95, I can wear a gas mask, and it's not going to protect me because my beard simply creates too much airspace in and out to either prevent me from infecting someone else or from, from getting. I have a doctor friend who's also an Orthodox Jew, a surgeon. And when he goes into surgery, he literally shows us he has to wear an airtight bubble around his entire head because he has an untrimmed beard like I have. Yeah. And in order to protect his patients. And do you see, do you see the, uh, how those people addressed who are working on viruses, not even, you know, those as infectious COVID yeah, they're in these, you know, hazmat suits. Why? Because that's, if you really want to protect, that's what protects, you know, in, right. in the Marine Corps, you have to go into gas chambers and get exposed to gas. And that's how you learn how to don and clear your gas mask. If your mask is, is, if you don't have it fitted properly, when you go in there, I mean like airtight fitted, I mean, you're, you're, you're <laughs> coughing, hacking, wheezing. I mean, it's you, you can't last in that gas chamber for, you know, more than, you know, 15, 20 seconds with the, right. uh, with the gas. So it's just, you know, and, and these things that are, this whole cottage industry that, that, you know, erupted with these masks that, that are just totally ineffective. It's just, it's nonsense. So anyways, it's I want to, it's part of the COVID hysteria. It absolutely is. It's part of tyranny. That's all it is. They want to control your lives. So I was mentioning there's this uh, a, a story that came out um, that was published by Reuters, right? So it's Reuters. We're not talking about, you know, the so-called right-wing conspiracy news agency. It's Reuters. And the title of this, and this came out uh, yesterday, says prior COVID infection more protective than vaccination during Delta surge. Huh, imagine that. If you had, if you had uh, COVID-19, right? The, the wild variant or the alpha variant, whatever they're calling it, and you recovered from that, your immunities actually more and were more infective than uh, the vaccines against the Delta variant, which turned out to be one of the most uh, lethal of the, of the variants. But yet, you know, all these vaccine mandates that nobody's even talking about natural immunity, right? They don't provide any exact, if you have an allergy to a, uh, you know, to a vaccine, you can get, you can potentially get a medical exemption from the vaccine, but then there's, there's no consideration for people who might have natural immunity from a virus, which, you know, growing up as a kid and and if you had chicken pox, the thought of going to get a vaccine for chicken pox after you had it was just absolutely absurd. Now, obviously coronaviruses do different things, but this to me is uh, the only thing shocking about this report and study is that it actually was reported 
uh, by Reuters, because we've been hearing, you know, certainly uh, medical and science experts, air quotes, uh, on the uh, on the conservative side, making very clear that, look, natural immunity is uh, is is the best immunity you can get. I mean, when you think about it, if and it's something I've always been saying, I'm not an expert at all. It's like, look, if my natural immunity doesn't work, then how does your vaccine work? Right. Because all that all the vaccine is doing is this mRNA uh, uh, you know, development they have is that it's telling your body to create immunities to a particular spike protein that's found in the, in the certain variants. Well, the spike protein changes from variant to variant, which is probably a reason why the vaccine didn't work for the uh, Delta variant. Um, but your natural immunities uh, provide more broad prophylactic and lasting uh, protection. You, you can't replicate in a laboratory that which God has created and your immunity system is a remarkable, remarkable system. And I don't think we even touched the surface in terms of how effective it can be. So it's not surprising to me that they're finding that natural immunity was uh, more effective. Now, David, I know uh, more effective. Now, David, I know you've uh, you've did some more drilling down on this. Um, so I'll, I'll turn the uh, turn it over to you. I will. Um, what you said is absolutely true, and that is, it is the height of hubris to think that a um, laboratory created vaccine is going to be more effective than the natural immunity that our bodies, which are enormously complex, and we haven't even begun to understand how all the systems work, which is why we don't understand why some people have bad outcomes from vaccines in the short term, and why we still don't know if there's going to be bad outcomes in the long term. But let me just drill down a bit. So the Reuters article is what everyone's passing around, and it came out yesterday. And it essentially is a report of some studies, collection of data, not really studies, but a collection of data by California and New York, two very blue states that said, look, um, the data is clear that Delta um, variant was, was more susceptible to immunity, natural immunity than to the, than to the vaccines. And they were studying um, Pfizer, but the likelihood is that was true of Moderna as well. Um, actually, I might have confused that. It might be both, but it was the mRNA vaccines. Now, what's interesting is that um, this is really a follow-on to an earlier report that the CDC made public, wasn't made a big deal out of by you know, viral lay people, but the experts that had been critical of vaccines did bring it out. And that is in, on October 29th, the CDC published this um, review of a variety of data sources, studies and what have you that had collected data. It wasn't a true meta-analysis, which is nothing more than a careful examination of the results of many individual studies to arrive at a higher level um, analysis of a problem. But it was a very good review. And it said the same thing, that natural immunity was more effective to prevent infection, to actually end infection, which is what Biden administration talks about, um, than the vaccines. And that its, its um, natural immunity effect extended at least six months at a fairly high level. Now, what they then go on to say is, well, but if you had natural immunity and a vaccine, 
you had less hospitalizations. But that doesn't really tell the whole story because it's unclear that the data actually suggests that natural immunity had less hospitalizations or bad outcomes. It certainly suggested a vaccine on top, but that's mostly a speculation based upon the evidence they have. It also doesn't tell us and doesn't measure that medium to long-term risk, three to five years and five years plus of the vaccine, which we don't know. We know there's some short-term risk, but those risks, especially for people with high comorbidity, are less risky, I would say, than getting COVID. So for people with high comorbidity, the idea of taking a vaccine is probably reasonable. But for those without comorbidities, the young and the healthy, and even the old and the healthy, um, if you have a life expectancy out past five years, then you need to think seriously about the vaccines, especially given their effectiveness. Because what we're saying is the vaccines are no longer going to prevent disease. They're not going to prevent it, and they're not going to prevent you from spreading it if you have it. What they seem to do is make the, the illness less severe if you're unvaccinated than if you were unvaccinated and not exposed to COVID previously. But if you were exposed to COVID previously, it appears as though you're better protected than the vaccines. And all you're getting possibly by actually having a vaccine on top of a previous infection is possibly an additional protection. But that possible additional protection, and it's not an absolute one, has to be weighed against the unknown medium and long-term risk. So every individual is, and by the way, the studies all say that these analyses are all at the high altitude population level. They don't necessarily apply to the individual level. A specific example. So that a, what they call a tighter level of antibody. So after you've been infected or given a vaccine, you have a certain level of antibodies. Those that, and it's called a titer, the, the amount of antibodies left in your blood. Those alone are not what creates your immunity. There's also T and other cells that, that affect in a global way, in a holistic way, how your body protects you from disease. Every individual with different levels of antibodies have different levels of protection. So Rob and I, both being exposed to, to um, uh, COVID-19, I in the very early days with the extremely mild case, Rob more recently with the more severe case, we will have very different levels of antibodies, even to the point where mine don't even show up now when I'm tested. But even mine, which don't show up, which aren't measurable, might be more protective than Rob's. Not at the population level, Rob is better protected. In other words, if you take all people and measure how they're protected, but it doesn't tell us what individuals, and that's why we continue to argue that the decision about vaccines is not science. All science does is measure how many antibodies, how many not, how many people go at hospitalized, how many don't, et cetera. 
but it doesn't tell us what you do about that. And at the, because it affects the individuals at an individual level, you can't mandate a one size fits all. Not only is that wrongheaded from a public policy, it's dangerous because of these unknown future risks. We don't know what those risks are. So to just tell everybody to get vaccinated because you might have some additional protection is not only wrongheaded, it's potentially dangerous. And it runs roughshod over another aspect of the public policy analysis that has to go into these decisions. What about the liberty element? The fact that we're just destroying people's individual liberty to make choices for themselves. What about the psychological element of this massive fear campaign? What about the depression and the suicides that have been on the increase as a result of all this nonsense? Public policy decision-making is enormously complex, but it is not driven by science. Science can only marginally inform these decisions. Anyway, it's my take on it, Rob. Well, a very good one. And uh, looking at the time, this probably rather than to jump into something new, that's probably a good uh, a good endpoint to uh, to wrap this up. And so that's uh, that is really all the time we have today. As always, we look forward to our next discussion. We thank all of you for joining us. Um, as you know, and as a reminder, our video casts are posted on our Rumble channel. Uh, FYI, we have uh, we are officially dumping Facebook and YouTube. Um, I'm just two thumbs up for that decision. Yeah, we can't, we can't justify that any longer. Um, we've already deactivated, but they tell us it takes 30 days for it officially to be deactivated, but it's off our web, our website. So we're going to, we're going to be searching out these alternate, uh, social media sources, rumble being one of them. We also have a gab account and we'll see what else might be coming down the road. We want to uh, exercise free speech and we want to stop supporting whether directly or indirectly by our mere presence on these platforms. Facebook, Twitter, and these other organizations who that are tyrannical, they're leftist, they're woke, and they want to destroy this country. And I don't want to be a participant in that in any way whatsoever. So we finally uh, uh, ditching them uh, for good. You know, it means losing 17,000 followers. So what? It's not, that's not worth the, uh, uh, you know, what, what the consequences of keep supporting these social media giants that, uh, you know, who are well, really working for the government, the wink and a nod, right? Obama, uh, Biden, whether directly or indirectly, you know, getting these guys to, to promote their propaganda to, you know, shut down alternate viewpoints, such as the ones that we, we uh, express here. And so we're done with it. So if you do like the content of our podcast, please follow us uh, on our, you know, we need more subscribers to our view, uh, to our Rumble channel. Uh, you can find our, our podcasts on uh, Spotify, Stitcher, we basically have an RSS feed, which then pushes it out to whoever picks it up. Um, so you can you can find again they're available on on uh, Spotify and Stitcher, I know, and there might be others as well. Uh, so please, if you like us, uh, please follow and spread the word. Also, as a, a nonprofit public interest law firm, uh, which is recognized by the IRS as a 501c3, all the legal work that we do, the cases that we handle, and we, there was a lot we were going to get into today, but as it is, time always uh, runs short on us. We we can pick it up next time. All the legal work we do is pro bono. It's for the good. Uh, that is, we don't charge for our legal services. Rather, we rely upon generous donations uh, from people like you. So if you'd like to support our work, you can do so safely on our website at AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org. All donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. 
I thank you again, and may God bless you, and may he continue to bless America. Amen.